Turn me to the book of Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 is where I want to direct your attention this morning uh, in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the pew ahead of you and you could use that and it would be helpful. We're going to read in just a moment from verses 13 through the end of the chapter uh, of Romans 14. Two things I want to mention. First of all, uh, if you are an astute observer, you'll have noticed that Scott and I will both be gone this week. Um, I will be in western New York in my hometown with my sisters and their families for a weekend celebration of my fi- uh, parents' 50th wedding anniversary. We're going to do that next weekend. And then uh, just a few weeks ago, six or seven weeks ago, uh, Scott, and his, uh, Scott and Jess were invited to a pastor's conference in Kansas City that is taking place this weekend. They are anticipating going, and um, so they'll be out of town, and um, so we'll be gone, but you will be in good hands because we expect the Holy Spirit will be here. So um, Doug Plank uh, from Crossway Church, I met Doug many, many years ago, and he's a student at Millersville Bible Church, uh, sorry, Millersville University, and he has been on the staff of Crossway for a long time, and uh, he's going to be preaching from Judges 3, so uh, I'm sure it will be a benefit uh, to us um, all. Uh, We are on the same team as Sovereign Grace, uh, as Crossway Church is, and um, so we'll be glad to, you'll be glad to welcome him. And uh, of course the elders too will be providing, will be around to provide any emergency pastoral care. They're really good at it. So you can trust them. Uh, there was a second thing that I wanted to mention. Oh yes. Um, so it has been a rather difficult week um, for many people in our congregation. And I would like to take a minute to pray before we look into God's word. So let's pray together, shall we? Oh, Father, we come before you this morning and we acknowledge that you are the great creator who, have called, who has called all things into existence by the word of your power. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth the handiwork. Father, we stare into the blue sky and we see the white clouds, the brilliance of the sun, and we rejoice at your great power. We, we drive through fields that are very tall with corn, and, and we're thankful to you for your blessing upon us. Lord, we're thankful to you. Uh, many of us during this season of the summer have had an opportunity for an extra measure of rest and refreshment. Some of us have been to the shore. Some of us have been to the mountains. Uh, we have been, uh, we've had extra time and we uh, give you thanks for the refreshment and the joy that those times, uh, extra times away bring. Yet even in the midst of this season of joy, Father, there are some of us who are walking through deep valleys. The world outside is beautiful, but on the inside there are uh, stormy clouds and chaos of sorrow and grief and despair and fear and worry. How, how, How much that is true, how true that is in this world that you called into existence but that has been uh, uh, tarnished by our sin, how, how true it is that we experience the beauties of grace and the wonders of, uh, and the horrors of sorrow all at the, at the same time. Lord, some of us this morning uh, gather with a special measure of grief as we meet together, uh, Scott and Jess and Art and Luke Um, Lord, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you tell us to fear no evil because you're with us. Some of us, Lord, we're recovering or we're anticipating surgery, Ed and Sandy and 
Bruce, uh, Dr. Farnham, we just mentioned a little bit ago, anticipating surgery in a couple weeks. Uh, Lord, it is discouraging and disconcerting to meet the reality that sin affects not just our souls, but our bodies too. We, we carry around with us the decay that we introduced into the world by our rebellion against you. We pray that these surgeries would be useful and effective in reversing that decay. Uh, some, Lord, are suffering still with cancer, Carol and Nancy and Ginny. Others are waiting for cancer diagnoses. Oh, Lord, the, the road through chemotherapy and radiation is hard and it is long. And I pray that you would provide soothing care for these that we love. You make us lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. Would you provide comfort for these who are suffering through this illness? Lord, some of us in this room have uh, grieves that we don't share with others. And we're in the midst of, of sorrow, loneliness, despair, discouragement, loss. Lord, you tell us to care for one another wisely and well. Would you grant that we might be sensitive and helpful and caring and compassionate? Lord, remind us, God is our refuge and strength of very present help in trouble. And I pray that you would, by your, by your grace, draw us to yourself that we can walk in you who are our strength and our song. Sorrow, remind us, Lord, that sorrow lasts for the, the evening, the night, but joy comes in the morning. Lord, our sorrows make us look to you in anticipation and hope of that great day when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and will be with you forever. Come quickly, we pray. Oh, come quickly, we pray, Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we ask these things together, saying, Amen. Now, let us read from Romans chapter 14, shall we? Romans 14, starting in verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but 
It is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Do you ever wonder on one of these hot, hot days why your thermometer never matches the news? Um, Why the official temperature is always lower than what your thermometer says? So it happens. It's frustrating. So I learned a couple weeks ago that the third week in July is on average the hottest week of the year. Picture it here. You have suffered through a day of scorching heat and you think it must be worse than anyone has ever endured on this day in history. You look at your thermometer and you look at the temperature and then you turn on the news and discover that in 1947 it was officially five degrees hotter than this day and all of your suffering was for naught. The official temperature is never as high as you think. Now, why is that? Well, uh, because the National Weather Service has very strict requirements about the thermometer that can measure official temperatures. Uh, In fact, a few years ago, they released the guidelines uh, for it. To measure official temperatures, a thermometer or its sensor, here we go, should be located over grass in a white ventilated shelter four to six feet off the ground, at least 100 feet from all paved surfaces, and at least 500 feet from any building. Does anybody have a thermometer that qualifies? (laughs) Unless you meet the requirements, your thermometer is not going to be an accurate gauge of the temperature. Now, it's not hard for me to move from an inaccurate thermometer to what the Bible teaches about your conscience. If you've been here for a few weeks, you know why. We've been looking at this topic during the summer. We started with this definition of what a conscience is. Your conscience is that God-given capacity that testifies to you about whether or not you are living up to what you believe is right and wrong. It's a long definition. You have convictions about what's right and what's wrong, and your conscience tells you, either by condemning you or vindicating you, whether or not you're living up to your convictions. Your conscience is a gift from God. It's, it's part of His moral warning system because we're accountable to Him. God has given us a conscience to warn us. Your conscience is particularly important in uh, matters that the Bible doesn't address directly or repeatedly. Christian stuff for hundreds of years have used a Greek term. I don't think it's in the Bible to my knowledge. I couldn't find it. Uh, To describe these issues, that Greek word is the Greek word adiaphora. Um, It means indifferent or matters of indifference. Um, Things that are not differentiable. Adiaphora issues are issues that the Bible neither commands nor prohibits. What does the Bible say about shopping at a Turkey Hill uh, Minute Mart? What does it say? Well, it neither commands nor prohibits. It's adiaphora. What do we do uh, when we're as followers of Jesus, when we encounter a decision and uh, we can't think of a passage in the Bible that addresses this matter directly? Is it okay to shop at Turkey Hill? Um... Well, we scan the scriptures for any sort of help. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. There my help comes. No, that's not it. That's not where we go. Um, Is there anything in the Bible that even touches on this issue, right? Um, 
we also recognize that in the providence of God, God has given you a conscience. Your conscience is not perfect. No one has a conscience that perfectly conforms to the moral will of God. You don't have a thermometer that measures the temperature correctly. Your conscience doesn't perfectly conform to the moral will of God. Your conscience can be corrupted, even seared by sin. But the conscience remains important. It's a gift from God. And for the past few weeks, we've been talking uh, from this passage of Scripture, Romans 14, about what we do when our consciences as believers disagree. So what do we do when we come to an issue, an adiaphora issue, and our consciences don't, don't agree? Sometimes, as a matter of conscience, we Christians split from one another and form new denominations. It happens. Now think with me for a minute about our own heritage as Baptists. So the Baptists came into existence in about 1609, 1610, somewhere around there in Great Britain. There were groups called Anabaptists. We're from Lancaster County. We know about the Anabaptists. Uh, in Germany, who practiced believers' baptism. But the Baptists in Great Britain, in contrast to the Anglicans and Catholics and Lutherans, believed that only believers should be baptized and they should only be immersed. So what did the Baptists do? They formed their own denomination. The Bible is not silent about baptism, of course, but here's a place where genuine followers of Jesus couldn't agree with one another. So this denomination came into existence. I could not in good conscience baptize a baby. And our Presbyterian brothers and sisters think we are sinning because there wasn't nearly enough water involved with Megan this morning. I think it's a sin that we don't baptize babies. We uh, we cooperate across denominational lines. Uh, We do it as far as our conscience allows. So sometimes when we can't agree with one another, we split. That's what we do. But do we ever split over things that we shouldn't split about? (laughs) We are Baptists, yes. Uh, Not everything rises to the level of a, a split. Then what do we do? We follow the injunction of Paul in Romans 14. 1. We accept one another. We welcome one another. We don't judge one another. We don't treat one another contemptuously. Instead, we love one another. Today we're going to talk about what happens when love and liberty, these adiaphora issues, meet. Sometimes love limits liberty. There are times for the sake of love when you set your liberty down. What does that look like? Uh, Martin Luther wrote these lines, A Christian is a most free Lord of all, subject to no one. A Christian is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Both of those lines are true. Now we're going to flesh out how. I want to unfold Romans 14. We're going to look at 13, 14, and 15, those three verses. And I want to do it under this heading, How Not to Be a Stumbling Blockhead. Um, When love and liberty meet, and you and your brothers and sisters disagree about a matter of conscience, we endeavor not to be blockheads, not to be stumbling blockheads. Here are three ways to do it. All right, number one. Resolve to avoid tripping up your fellow believers. Resolve to avoid tripping up your fellow believers. Verse 13 begins, doesn't it, with this familiar command? Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Okay, Paul, we get the idea. How many times has he said this? Don't judge one another. Don't judge one another. He keeps saying it over and over again as if he knows that this is a temptation that we face all the time. It's almost as if he knows that this is the default path that our brains run. We judge one another without even thinking about it. It doesn't require any effort at all. 
See if you catch yourself. See this week if you can catch yourself. The next time you're out at the grocery store or the hardware store or even on the road, does your mind default to categorizing and labeling people? Just where your mind goes? What a terrible driver. That guy has no idea what he's doing. Lowe's should not let him in. They should put somebody at the door to keep people like that out. Or, um, dude, you'd be happier in the long run if you put some of those candy bars back on the shelf. Are the people in your world, are they there to be judged or are the people in your world there to be loved? How do you treat them? Paul says this over and over and over again. Don't judge, don't judge. Let us not judge one another. It's just the default. What's interesting here in this passage is that Paul uses the same verb judge in the second part of the sentence. So, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, when my translation says make up your mind, it, 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 it literally, it's the same word judge that uh, was in the first part of that sentence. Uh, it works better in Greek than in English. The, the Greek word judge is a little bit broader than the, the English word uh, judge. But, but Paul is saying, don't use your mind to dismiss people, to, to establish your superiority over people, to label people. Don't use your mind to do that. Instead, use your mind, make up your mind, not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. It's not difficult to understand what Paul means by these phrases. They're essentially synonyms, a stumbling block and an obstacle, the same thing. Don't do something, don't put in front of your fellow believers something that will spiritually trip them up. These words in the New Testament, they almost always refer to a spiritual downfall. Resolve to avoid tripping up your fellow believers. Now, what does Paul have in mind? I think what he actually means is he explains in greater detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So I wrote down on the note sheet a paragraph from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 9, because I think he um, fleshes out there a little bit more what he means. So follow along, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Be careful, he says, however, that the exercise of your rights, that your liberty, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Now here's how that works. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, that is your knowledge that makes you strong, he's mocking them a little bit, you're so smart, you think you're so smart, you're not acting in love because you're so smart. With all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, remember in this scenario, a strong believer has the freedom of conscience to eat meat sold at an idol's temple. Not all Christians had that freedom in 1 Corinthians 8. There were some that the meat was so tainted by idolatry that they couldn't eat it. But there were some Christians who, who knowing, they had knowledge, knowing that idols are nothing, it didn't matter where they got their meat, they gave thanks to God for it. So remember, that's the scenario. But if somebody sees you eating meat in an idol's temple, um, the text continues, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So here's the scenario. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 8 later. It's important. But here's the scenario. A believer who does not feel free to eat in an idol's temple sees you eating in an idol's temple, and they conclude it must be okay. So in violation of their own conscience, they eat in the idol's temple, and it's disastrous. They fall into sin by disobeying their conscience. Remember, it's very important that you obey your conscience. Disobeying, disobeying your conscience puts you on the path towards spiritual ruin. 
Notice here in this passage and in Romans 14, Paul puts the onus on the the strong believer. A strong believer can eat anything and anywhere he wants to. They 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 have the choice. You have the freedom. You have the the, the choice. Um, You have less convictions about the adiaphora. But the weak, who are following their conscience, don't have the choice. So don't tempt them to violate their consciences. Even though you know better, don't lead them astray. Now, Paul uses the word see. If someone sees you eating in an idol's temple, I imagine that more is involved than just sight. There are obvious ways in which this principle applies. Don't encourage someone to violate their conscience. Don't push them. Um, if, If your brother or sister has convictions about drinking alcohol, don't offer it. Don't encourage your brother or sister to violate their conscience by getting a tattoo. Don't encourage them to watch television shows or movies that they feel are inappropriate. That can happen, right? Oh, you should, it's, it's fine. There's just this one scene. It won't bother just, You'll be okay. Go ahead. Let's just watch this. It's really funny. Don't encourage people to violate their conscience. It's an obvious way of tripping someone up. There are less obvious ways. I'm going to tell you about one of them right now that maybe you haven't thought about a lot, but it's worth thinking about. We try at our church to be very careful about what we include when we meet together on Sunday mornings for worship. It's not difficult practice for us. We're used to it. We don't struggle with this. This is a huge issue during the Protestant Reformation, and there are some churches who, who uh, would benefit from thinking more clearly about this. Follow me here for a moment. If you are a follower of Jesus, you must gather with God's people for worship. You have to. You have to go to church. If you are physically able, the Bible requires you to participate in corporate worship. To not participate in corporate worship is a sin. You have to be here. The Bible requires it. Um, And because the Bible requires you to be here, those who plan the services, our meetings, have to be very careful about what's included in them. We don't have the authority during a meeting of the church that you are required to attend by the Bible to invite you or pressure you to do something that violates your conscience. Uh, This is why when we meet together, we focus on the things that the Bible requires. We read the Bible like the Bible tells us to. We pray, we take the Lord's Supper, we sing. We don't mandate that you stand up and dance good thing you don't want to see that right we don't mandate that you stand up and dance why because that might violate your conscience i don't know you're required to be here i don't have the authority to tell you to do something that violates your conscience um this is why we don't um have statues of jesus in our building this is why um we don't show movies during our services, except during Mother's Day, that cute one about the mothers or the babies. I mean, we do that. But we don't show movies as part of our service. Some of you may have convictions about watching movies and watching films. I don't have the authority under God to make you violate your conscience. You're here because you must be here at God's command. I don't have the authority to mandate that you violate your conscience by something that you do here in worship. So we stick to the basics. This is part of the reason why we use grape juice instead of wine during the Lord's Supper. We resolve to avoid tripping up our fellow believers. Don't encourage them to violate their conscience. 
Now, second here, we're going to move on. Secondly, know when to assert biblical teaching. Know when to assert biblical teaching. Paul says something absolutely stunning here, I think. In verse 14, he says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. This is a stunning statement, and he says it twice. It makes me ask a lot of questions. Verse 20, there's the second time it's in verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. That's stunning. What does Paul mean here when he says, in the Lord Jesus? He might be referring to Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus declared all foods clean. Maybe, maybe that's what he means. Maybe uh, Paul has read Mark 7 and is uh, speaking about what the Lord Jesus taught directly. Or maybe he's just speaking when he says, I'm fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus. Maybe he's just speaking uh, from his own uh, fellowship as a representative of the Lord Jesus. Now imagine that you're in the church in Rome and you get this letter from Paul and you're reading Romans. And for the first time, you're gathered in church and someone's reading this letter and, and um, you've had this trouble in your church over people who eat meat and people who don't eat meat. And Paul gets to it in Romans 14. This, this is the most beautiful letter that has ever been written and Paul devotes uh, 10 to 12% of it to this issue. And Paul's talking about when you would eat meat, when you would not eat meat. And then in verse 14, he says, eh, nothing is unclean in itself. And imagine you're one of the meat eaters in the congregation. What would you say at that point in time? I knew it! I knew it! You guys have been hassling me for so long, and I'm right. Right? I'm right. What's the matter with you people? Would you be tempted to do that? I would be tempted to do that. Notice here what Paul doesn't do. He does not tell the weak, those with convictions against eating meat, to get with the program. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't tell them to toughen up. He doesn't rebuke their weakness. Instead, he tells the strong to back off. Since you're so mature, you should have enough Maturity to moderate your liberty for the sake of love. It's not the meat that's the issue. It's love now. Paul speaks a biblical truth here. He doesn't push people about it. And yet, oh, think, think with me. Sometimes he does. Let's do some more comparison. Do you remember this? So in Romans 14.5, back in Romans 14.5, he says... One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers each every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So there were some in the church in Rome who wanted to honor special days. Maybe it would be Sabbath days or special Jewish holidays. And there were some who didn't feel it was necessary. And Paul says, eh, everybody should be convinced in their own mind. Right? He says this in Romans. Do you remember what he says though in Galatians 4? Look at Galatians 4, 8 and see if he has the same attitude toward honoring days there. Galatians 4, 8. Formerly, he says, when you, you Gentile, you Galatians, did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. You worshipped idols. They were not gods, you were their slaves worshipping them. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, it's a good reminder. If you know somebody who is suffering from Alzheimer's or from dementia. This is the precious promise. 
Because what matters more supremely than whether or not they know God is that God knows them. And his memory is perfect. Sorry. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to these weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Do you see this? If you're a member of the church in Rome, you can honor special days. That's fine. But if you're in Galatia and you're honoring special days, you are a sign that Paul has wasted his life. What is going on? How do we put this together? Well, remember, if like in Galatia, you believe it is necessary, here's the key distinction, if you believe it is necessary to observe special days in order to be a Christian, if you believe it's a biblical requirement for all Christians and that you're not really a Christian if you're not honoring special days, then Paul wants to have words with you. Paul wants to have words with you about adding rituals like special days to the gospel because you can't add rituals like that to the gospel. But if you're in Rome and you're able to recognize the difference uh, that believers have different consciences and days and meat are part of the adiaphora, Paul is the most flexible person in the world. If in the church in Rome, someone stands up and says, in order to follow Jesus, you can't eat meat, Paul says, pass the steak and make it a big piece. But if you say to Paul, and you're in the church in Rome, I just can't eat that because it was offered to idols, Paul says, oh, you know what, I really wanted salad anyway, so let's have some salad. Right? This is hard to figure out. Boy, the church of Jesus Christ needs smart people. If you're a smart person and God has given you a fine mind, please give yourself over to thinking about this. Recognize what we have to figure out. We, we have to figure out, first of all, is this issue that we're dealing with, is it adiaphora or not? Is it commanded or prohibited in the Bible or is it not? And, and if it's not, then is the person who's asserting it, are they doing it because they believe it's part of the gospel or are they asserting it just because it's part of their conscience? And there's different responses, both, both directions. Some of you, by the grace of God, God has given you great gifts of mercy and kindness. You outstrip me by miles in showing mercy to people. And boy, the church needs you. Some of you, God has given great minds and you outstrip me by miles in your ability to think these things through. And boy, does the church need you to help us figure this out. This is not easy. Do we assert the truth because it's a question of uh, uh, compromising the gospel, like in Galatia? Or are we very flexible because it's just a matter of the fact that Christians grow and they're understanding at different rates and, and we're flexible. Which, which is it? It could be either one. Think about it very carefully. This, this is also the reason, I suppose, why it's important for us sometimes to talk about these issues. It's part of our discipleship groups or accountability groups. Or how do you feel about this issue, this adiaphor issue? And why do you think it's adiaphor? And what biblical principles do you use? And, and uh, what are you thinking? How are you thinking about this? Now, notice what he says at the end of verse 14. He says, If anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. Take the convictions that other people have seriously. It really means something. It would be a sin for them to eat this meat. 
Objectively, Paul knows it's clean, but if you eat it in violation of your conscience, you have sinned. By Paul's elevating the conscience here. Your, your conscience in adiaphora matters and indifferent matters matters more than the object itself. Your evaluation of the meat is more important than the meat itself. This is not a general principle. Okay, don't take the end of verse 14 and apply it to everything in the Bible. You know, like, hmm, adultery. How does my conscience feel about adultery? Is it right or wrong? It's wrong. It's wrong. It's always wrong, right? But in matters of adiaphora, listen to your conscience and have regard for the consciences of others. There are times to assert biblical teaching and there are times to uh, allow the Spirit to work in people at different rates and in different ways. Now, here third. Here's a third way not to be a stumbling blockhead. Recognize how serious your conscience is. Recognize how serious your conscience is. I've already alluded to this. Verse 15 makes this very explicit. It says, If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Uh, Paul uses two verbs here that are very hard words. Distressed and destroyed. Now we should be careful with these verbs because here actually is a place where weak-minded, weak-conscienced, legalist Christians can act. Some older translations of verse 15 don't use the word distressed. They use the word grieved or offended. And this used to be the way sometimes controlling Christians would speak. They would see somebody acting out of their liberty and they would say, I am offended at what you're doing. I'm offended at what you're doing. And Romans 14, 15 says that if I'm offended, you've got to stop. Let me ask the question. Are you offended in the sense that you don't like it, what I'm doing? Or are you offended in the sense that you're tempted to violate your conscience and do what I'm doing? Because if you're offended because you just don't like it and you want me to stop, but you're not tempted to do it, then you need to read Romans 14, 13 about not judging. But if you're offended in the sense that you're tempted to do what I'm doing in violation of your conscience, then we have to have a different conversation. See the difference? That word offended has been played as a trump card a lot. Your feelings are not the issue here. The issue here is, is temptation. Paul has something very serious in mind. He's speaking here with the words distress and destroy of spiritual ruin. In the Bible, a Christian who is destroyed is someone who has abandoned the faith. They have left the church. They can expect nothing but divine, eternal condemnation. Paul has in mind that the possibility that someone could follow your own encouragement in violation of their conscience and be led down the path toward renouncing the Lord Jesus. This is very serious. Now, for a minute, I need to do a little inside baseball. I want to talk for just a second to those of you who are, have, have, have very keen theological radar. This is a difficult verse. What's difficult about verse 15 is, well, it raises, here's a little bit of inside baseball, our understanding of what the Bible teaches about um, eternal security. Because he talks about someone being destroyed, a brother who's being destroyed. 
How can that be? Or, some of you, um, uh, how can anyone, some of you who believe in, in, here's my theological terms, particular redemption or limited atonement, how can it be that someone for whom Christ died would be destroyed? This is not the only place in the Bible that addresses those particular issues. Regardless, we're not going to expand that at this point in time. This is a tough verse. Paul wants you to take this very seriously. You can cause great harm through the foolish use of your liberty. You notice how Paul sets the value of a follower of Jesus. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Christ died. That's the standard Your regard for them is grounded in the fact of what Christ has done. He has died for them. We sing that song, My worth is not in what I own. Have you learned the first verse yet? We've only been singing it a couple years. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. Brothers and sisters, you are surrounded by your fellow followers of the Lord Jesus. They are the ones for whom Christ died. Love them. Love them. Love them more than you love meat or days or wine. This is the central truth around all of us, that all of us gather as followers of Jesus. Christ died for us as an expression of his love. How do we know what love is? Christ offered himself for us as our substitute in our place to pay the penalty we owe because of our sin. And all who believe, turn to him and trust in him, find life and forgiveness in his name. We hold this truth so highly that it changes how we treat one another, that Christ has died for us. I didn't read the rest of 1 Corinthians 8. I want to pick up in the middle of that paragraph. Look what he says. In 1 Corinthians 8, So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge, same vocabulary, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Uh, This past week I was listening to uh, a, a little lecture, uh, a CD of a lecture by Timothy Laniak. Timothy Laniak at the time was a professor uh, at Gordon Seminary, and he has spent most of his life studying the shepherding image in the Bible. Uh, pastors are called shepherds in the Bible, and that metaphor for pastors largely flows from the fact that God is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. Well, in order to do his research, Laniac spent about a year in Jordan, the country of Jordan, and around uh, meeting with Bedouin shepherds. Those men and women in that country uh, 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 care for their sheep in much the same way that they did during Jesus' day. He told, he told about how he met this shepherd one day, and he, he, this man had a flock of 2,000 sheep. It's a, that was large. He was a wealthy man. He started with his flock 10 or 12, sorry, 20 years ago, and he had uh, 8 or 10 sheep, and he grew the flock over the years. So it was this massive uh, sheep, 2,000 sheep in this flock. Leniak said to him <coughs> one day, have you ever lost any of your sheep? And he said, oh, no, no. And he thought about it for a minute. He said, well, um, everyone who has wandered off, I have found either the sheep or the sheep's remains. 
He hunts them down. He finds, there's wild animals all over the place. If a sheep wanders off, it gets attacked by wild animals. He found the remains. He said, I have not lost one of my sheep. Then he thought about it for a minute. And he said, well, actually, there was one. It was this ewe lamb who wandered away many years ago. And I searched and I searched and I searched and I never found her and I never found her remains. And I think about that sheep. Think about her at night when I'm, when I'm trying to fall asleep and I wonder what happened to that sheep. The Lord is my shepherd, Jesus says. I am the good shepherd. Remember, brothers and sisters, you are surrounded by those that God loves dearly. The Father loves, the Son has redeemed, the Spirit indwells. Don't for the sake of meat or any other idea for issue. Don't, don't destroy them. Don't hurt them. One of the fears that I have about this series and, and, and that it can happen is if you bring up issues over and over again that divide a people, sometimes you make that division worse. Uh, this is what uh, politicians do, right? We're all Democrats, so we have to agree on everything, and there's nobody who can have any Democratic dissent. And we're all Republicans, so we better agree about absolutely everything. You better be on board and never criticize any other Republican. It was Ronald Reagan's 11th commandment, right? Thou shalt not uh, condemn another Republican. That's the way it works in politics. It's not the way it works in church. What is true of us as a church is that we, what we agree about is so precious to us, it matters so much to us that our areas of disagreement are not really that important in comparison. Remember what John Piper said. Uh, and he was in uh, disagreement with a colleague. The things we love and live for and would die for are so great that this disagreement could not overthrow all those riches. Christ died for us. He rose again. Is there anything that we hold that's richer than that? Now, I want to finish this morning with two admonitions that flow out of this passage having to do with love and liberty. They flow out of this text, and I think they're important and wise as we continue to consider this passage. Here's the first of my final admonitions. Number one, it is not necessary to flout your freedom. It is not necessary to flout your freedom. You don't have to use every ounce of liberty you have at every moment. Liberty in the context of love doesn't poke people in the eye with its liberty. You may have the liberty to drink alcohol, but it's not necessary for you to bring a six-pack to the church picnic, okay? It's not necessary for you to flout your liberty. This past Sunday, uh, one of Jenna's friends was um, over at the house in the afternoon, and they wanted to practice music for the band. Um, So we ate dinner together as a family, and we were talking about church, and Jenna's friend said, At my church, you really have to dress up to go. Do you have to dress up to go to your church? And I said, not not really. People wear all kinds of levels of clothing. And Luke, apparently this was a surprise to him. He said, really? Wait until you see what I wear next week, he said. (laughs) He said, it's like Independence Day. I said, dude, you wear shorts to church from May 1st to October 1st. Where are you going down from there? Right? What possibly... He's going to wear his pajamas to church next Sunday. So, I'm not sure. There's no dress code. You have the freedom to wear whatever your conscience allows you to church. But you know that some of our members have different convictions about this. Don't poke people in the eye with your convictions, with your freedom. 
It's not necessary. Sometimes you adapt your convictions to others just to enhance peace. You may not be destroying them, but why be not unnecessarily provocative? That's not loving. So when we have guest speakers at our church, if they don't ask, I always tell them because uh, the wise ones ask, what translation of the Bible do you use and how should I, I dress from the pulpit? So if I were ever invited to preach at a church uh, and uh, I asked those questions and they said, our pastor always wears a suit and he preaches from the King James, I would get out my King James and I would suit up and I would go and tell them about Jesus. There's no point in, at that moment in time uh, castigating them or poking them in the eye with my freedom because I don't want to distract them from the fact that Christ has died and risen again. It's not necessary to flout your freedom. Now, here's closing admonition number two. Don't be a slave to your freedom. Don't be a slave to your freedom. This might be an extension of the first admonition. Um, don't be a slave to your freedom. I'm astounded by what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 8. I don't need to eat meat ever again. If it's going to hurt somebody, I don't, if it's going to cause you to sin, I won't ever eat it again. And you want to turn to Paul and say, really, Paul, are you sure? You know, you were like a faithful Jew until you, became, until you met Jesus. You know, ham and bacon are still new to you. Are you sure you're ready to just give that up like this? Are you sure? Paul's like, I'd give it up in a minute. Paul is so free, he's not a slave to his freedom. Two illustrations. Every year during the first weekend of freshman orientation, there are students uh, at, on campus at Millersville, and I assume campuses all across the country, their parents drop them off on Wednesday, and Friday night comes, and they realize, I'm free. I have no parents wondering where I am or what I'm doing, and they go out and do foolish things. They find the biggest party they can, and they get wasted. If you wake up on Saturday morning, the first weekend of your freshman year, and you don't know where you are, and campus security finds you, they're going to send you home because you don't deserve that freedom. They're a slave to freedom. I've got to express it. I've got to, got to do it. Um, here's, here's another um, illustration. It, it's one that I think works well. I'm a little hesitant uh, to use it. Here's why. It's about a friend of mine, and some of you know this man. Uh, he's not part of our church. Um, but he has, uh, this story is 20 years old. He's, he has in the preaching ministry that he's had led hundreds if not thousands of, of people to faith in Christ. I have a great amount of respect for this man. Here's a story from 20 years ago that doesn't put him in the best light. Follow me. So I spent my, my uh, high school years uh, and college years working at a Christian camp. It was a great experience during the summer, crucially formative in my faith, and the camp had some strict rules. One of them was about hair. Guys had to have short hair. It could not touch your collar or your ears. This is the late 80s. Hair was serious. It was for me the good old days when I could actually break that rule. I can't break that rule anymore. But back in the 80s when I could, there was this rule. Couldn't touch the collar, couldn't touch the ears. Well, there was a man. His name was Wayne. His name is Wayne. He's the son of the president of the camp, and he really wanted to grow his hair longer. Don't know why, but this is really important to him. So the second that campers left the last week of camp, Wayne stopped cutting his hair and he didn't touch it with scissors or razor or even tweezers for nine months. He let it grow as long as possible. It was not attractive. It was a rat tail, but that was what he wanted to do. Um, 
Who am I to judge? If I ever criticize your haircut, look at me and say, Divinity, who are you to judge? So we'll move on from there. But um, staff training began in mid-June. All the staff showed up in June 10th. Campers came June 25th. The staff showed up about June 10th, and they had read the rules. No hair. It's got to be cut short. And, and there they see the camp president's son walking around like Samson. And, and they would wonder... And, and he would say to them, camp hasn't started yet. There's no campers here. I don't have to have my hair cut. He maintained his locks all the way through training. And on the morning of the first day that campers were to arrive at breakfast, he showed up at breakfast with the most beautiful short haircut you have ever seen. Can I suggest to you that he was a slave to his freedom? He had to express it. He had his freedom and he had to, he had to express it. Be so free that you're not a slave to your freedom. Liberty is not the most important thing about your faith in the Lord Jesus. What is? Love. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your great kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. Lord, you in the providence, Father, in the providence of God, you have made it this way that, that there are many indifferent things, things the Bible doesn't command us to do, things the Bible doesn't prohibit us to do, and you have in your providence given us consciences to help us. I do pray, as I have prayed many times, that you would make us as a congregation, as individuals, people sitting here in the pews, make us attuned, more attuned to our consciences that we might hear and listen to them carefully. I pray too that you would, Father, enable our consciences to be tuned by love for our brothers and sisters. I ask again, keep us from judging one another. It's so easy. Our minds just fall into it. This rut that our brains go to. Keep us from that. Help us to, in obedience to your word and by the power of the Spirit, set our minds on loving one another, protecting one another from violating our consciences, doing what leads to peace for the sake of love. In our congregation, I pray that you would exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again, so that all things would seem small in comparison to his glory. Help us. Help us, we pray, because we need that help. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.